This is David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Welcome to this edition of the SpeechCast, a joint venture between the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and the speech project of the Jewish Journal. I'm very proud to have uh, Ari Lam, Rabbi Ari Lam, who is a modern Orthodox rabbi, um, also um, founder and CEO of B'nai Zion, which is an organization you're going to hear about that uh, builds bridges to the Jewish people's natural allies, and to the Joshua Network, which is this exciting new network of faith-based podcasts and, and content that they're putting together. So he's going to tell us more about that um, as well. Um, uh, Rabbi Lamb and I went to uh, Israel and the Palestinian areas on Encounter years ago. It's okay to talk about that, right? You're not. Sure. Um, and uh, we had, we were among those who had alternative interpretations of what we were seeing. Um, not everybody did. Some people were somewhere in the middle. We tended to have a very different view than what our Palestinian hosts sometimes told us, but it was still a useful experience and got to know each other during that time. I should also say that Rabbi Lamb is the grandson of the great uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb, who was the longtime president of Yeshiva University. Um, so uh, Rabbi Lamb, really good to see you. I'm so glad to be here. So um, uh, you're, you're sort of a social entrepreneur here. Tell us a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. Uh, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is uh, pop culture and how it shapes our values and shapes our future. And uh, one of the things that I've been sort of nonplussed by is the way in which traditional communities across the country, whether it be uh, traditional Jewish communities, Catholics, evangelicals, Latter-day Saints, Muslims, Hindus, what, what have you, uh, are constantly um, complaining that the culture doesn't reflect their values. Culture doesn't reflect our values. Um, and we talk about culture as if it's the kind of thing that we couldn't possibly influence or shift or change or build. It's the kind of thing that's always operating on and against us. And it just seemed to me that this was, uh, uh, you know, in light of the last several thousand years of, of magnificent human development, it seemed that um, the, <laughs> the reality was the reverse. We actually have this incredible or we have these incredible respective traditions and stories and, and storehouses of wisdom. And if anybody should be shaping culture, it should be us. So instead of complaining about culture, let's go out and build culture. And so what we're doing uh, at the Joshua Network is we are uh, creating a, a, a multimedia studio that's producing premium content for a young generation that takes faith seriously uh, and wants to see uh, a culture and content in their culture that celebrates and reflects their values. Because if there's one thing that we know about uh, faith and tradition in the coming generation, it's that, you know, there's much less, uh, much less attachment to sort of like old school, traditional um, religious organizations than there were uh, many years ago, maybe at any time in U.S. history. But if you look at how young people are talking about their spiritual lives, the the rise in a hunger and thirst for spirituality, for tradition, for religious fulfillment has never been greater than it is now. Um, but nobody's uh, nobody's meeting this generation where it is. And so that's actually what we want to do. Mm. Um, you look at some of the most uh, impressive and important figures in pop culture nowadays, whether it's Kendrick Lamar, Justin Bieber, Carrie Underwood, Chance the Rapper, Kanye West. These are all deeply 
uh, faithful people who take their faith seriously. And we want to match that. Uh, we want to sort of do that intentionally, not just by accident. Hmm. So my organization tracks very closely culture, but a specific ideological culture that seems to be emerging. It's a very comprehensive system, it turns out. Um, we call it uh, critical social justice. Colloquially, uh, colloquially, it's sometimes referred to as wokeness. Uh, it used to be referred to as political correctness, but I don't think that actually captured the comprehensiveness of this ideology. And in, particularly in the last year, it seems that it's really taken on a fervor and that people are starting to um, dominate this uh, the, with this culture and this ideology in hand. And you're seeing institutions, Jewish institutions, Jewish day schools, uh, perhaps, um, Jewish uh, advocacy organizations, some of the denominations, perhaps not the Orthodox denominations, but many of the you know, reform and conservative and reconstructionist uh, denominations are, are buying into the vocabulary of critical social justice ideology. Some have suggested that it, in some ways it's operating like an alternative religion, that it's filling a void that religion left, um, that it is, um, it is explaining the world in this very bewildering time. What's your take on this right now? I think one of the lessons that we as a society should have learned from the 60s and then again the 90s, but didn't both times, is that when you try to take religion away from your children, they're just going to find it elsewhere. Um, because religion, ritual, spiritual hunger, as you know, aspiration for for a, a greater world that we definitely don't understand, but we do believe we can make better is as natural a thing as there is in the human experience. People mm -hmm. want that. And so if you take it away from them, they're going to find it elsewhere. So what happened in the 60s and the 90s, whether it's in culture or whether it's in politics or e economics or other areas of human interaction, is that um, we kind of had these, these generations of very powerful people uh, in all walks of life decide that religion, organized religion, uh, tradition had failed us in various ways, which, you know, in many ways, in many ways, it, it, its failures were apparent. And therefore, the best thing that we can do is throw it off and hmm. sort of proclaim the individual, the enlightened and completely freed individual as the apex of civilization. And so... <laughs> What you end up with is this generation in the 60s that comes of age in the 60s and then another one that comes of age in the 90s that uh, or maybe in like the late 80s that that grows up in a culture where they're told that the best thing you can do is be yourself. And what those generations either found out themselves or that their kids and maybe now grandkids are finding out is that if you're going to be yourself nearly always you're going to have to do it by yourself. And that's a recipe for terrible and deep despair and loneliness. Um, and so what happens is people look at the world around them and they see injustice, which, you know, people would have to be a fool to deny that there's great injustice in the world around us. There's, <laughs> you know, all, all the great religious traditions affirm it. And I, I see no reason for us to disagree. They see injustice right. in the world around them. 
And they also see and hear their parents and grandparents telling them that, well, the best way to solve any problem in the world, whether it's your own financial success or societal injustice, is for the individual to take charge, individual liberty and individual rights. And and what the young people sort of hear in that is sort of a hollow preaching. And they know it's not true. Like they know it's not true because it's nonsense. And so what they now in the past, when young people heard sort of powerful elites in the Roman Senate uh, or in the courts of the Babylonian or Assyrian kings preaching obvious nonsense, they turned to <laughs> the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, or they turned to larger spiritual and traditional forces that gave them a different way of looking at and reading and interpreting the world. And the virtue of those traditions is that they were holistic. They were generous. They were, I, I've, I obviously believe they were divinely inspired, but, um, but even if you don't, they were these sort of comprehensive, well thought through time tested and time honored and radical ways of looking at the world that gave you a, that gave you an avenue into fighting back against these really powerful forces in your life that you could see were just not doing any good. And in many cases were doing terrible harm. What's happened today is that um, the, the generations that, that sort of came of age in the 60s and the 90s were so successful in, in decimating the kind of traditional and, and religious forces against which they were reacting that their kids and grandkids now have nothing to grab back onto when they're critiquing their parents. So all that's left is politics. And so that's how you get this like really corrosive and toxic political political ideology that's making fools that, that allows you know young people and even children to to feel that they're doing good to make fools of their elders and i think it's very telling by the way that the the community that kind of that kind of sees the worst excesses of this as you know people like barry weiss or caitlin flanagan have chronicled are these sort of like upper class, very privileged people in Harvard Westlake mm. and Dalton and 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 places like that? Um, places where you're probably less likely to see this kind of nonsense are in minority communities themselves. I mean, you still see horrible and and in many and often much more acute anger at actual literal injustice. Um, but you know, there's a reason why you're kind of less more likely why you're more likely to find the the most ridiculous forms of wokeness in sort of like elite spaces like Harvard Westlake less likely to find it in sort of you know your average uh hispanic community your average traditional jewish community your average black community because those are places that are still bastions of tradition and religion uh the the black church is the most is the most important and vital institution in the Amer in the Black American community. It's not even close. The Hispanic community is overwhelmingly religious. The traditional Jewish community has these long traditions of deep uh, study and care for tradition. So you're just less likely to find false idols there because because um, the traditions that keep false idols at bay are still vital in those places. Mm. I think that's so, what we see going on. Right. So. In a way, your your 
might be making an argument against sort of our fundamental proposition, and I and which is fine. It's good. I love it. But I, I want to put that out there that there's um, our, the the basic idea of sort of the liberalism community, and I include that we're trying to protect liberalism. What is liberalism? Liberalism is the basic operating system of Western society that allows people to talk, argue, disagree, um, agree, um, understand what works, what doesn't work, scientific inquiry, and the rest. And we're saying that that is under assault. And when it was under assault, liberals failed to stand up for liberalism. They forgot really what it was, um, or they didn't even, it became like the air they were breathing, and they didn't recognize that it was under assault from these uh, highly ideological forces until it was too late. Now everybody's scared of them. Um, Yet you're saying, well, it's actually not liberalism that's uh, that's held these forces at bay. It's it's sources of tradition and religion that has helped them at bay. Are those two ideas, your idea and my idea, um, are they mutually exclusive? So that's a great question. I think the answer is no. I think uh, I, I, you know, unlike many of my my uh, my friends and, and intimates these days, you know, there's a there's sort of like a popular critique of liberalism. Uh, which I, I share, I share the critique of liberalism, but I don't go all the way with the post-liberals. Um, and I'd like to articulate why, because I actually think it's important. One of the yeah. real, really important post-liberal sort of critiques of liberalism is that liberalism as such is incoherent. Now, I agree that sort of like American liberalism is like deeply incoherent, but I actually don't think it's a bad thing because I think so much of our lives are just incoherent and there's nothing wrong with that. So, and I think like life at its most, at its most exciting is incoherent to so just read the poetry of Milton, read the poetry of Shakespeare, uh, read the Bible. Um, there's a reason why the first two chapters of Genesis speak in different voices as Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik said, and he wasn't the first one, you know, one of the great Jewish theologians of the 20th century. Um, the, the Bible has lots of messages to, to convey to its readers. And the messages are sometimes contradictory. It was the Greeks uh, who believed that, that uh, A and not A are incompatible, but it was the Hebrew Bible that affirmed that, of course, A and not A are compatible. That's how stories work and narrative works and personal history works. So what I, what I think is, is going on with American liberalism that, 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 that I wish more people like myself who are very committed to the American tradition of, of liberalism would recognize, and I actually think it's, it's existentially essential for us to recognize, mm -hmm. is that American liberalism always and must always mooch off of the deep traditionalism that is also latent in the American, uh, in the American experience and story. Um, I think sort of like, you know, Tocqueville thought that America had sort of solved the the tensions between liberalism and religion. I just think Tocqueville was wrong. It wasn't that America solved them. It was that America found a way to bracket them uh, and say it's OK to live with contradictions. So what I mean by that is that you could take sort of like the deep veneration that our that that our society justly has and right and correctly has for Martin Luther King Jr. I think there's sort of like a liberal narrative of 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 Dr. King that says what he was fighting for was liberalism, uh, which is to say, yes. you know, he was fighting for sort of like a, a um, a society in which in which equal access 
the equal access to opportunity was de rigueur. And that's not wrong. It's just that it's so it, it, it so barely exhausts the the entirety of what he was fighting for because it wasn't Dr. King. He was Reverend King. There is no way to understand like Dr. King's entire worldview was deeply incoherent without the the deep moral impetus of the Bible and particularly the Hebrew Bible. So, for example, the the line for which, you know, Reverend King is most maligned in sort of like progressive circles these days is, you know, the 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 arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice because it's kind of like this taken to be this sort of like embarrassing element of of King's thought that you can that you can sort of relegate to the sidelines because it's magical thinking, right? That's not how the world really works. But the answer is for Reverend King, of course, it's how the world works because God is going to save us. Like the same way that God was going to take the Israelites out of Egypt. The only question was, what role did you want to play in your salvation? The same thing is true when it comes to America's original sin, which is racism. God is going to save us and redeem our society. The only question is, what role do we want to play in our own salvation? It's the story of the book of Esther. It's the same story that we're that we're dealing with here. So I think there needs to just be a basic recognition, for example, that there is not one example in the history of the American project of progress on racial issues that is not rooted deeply and directly in the wisdom of the Hebrew Bible. The founders drew directly upon the, the Hebrew Bible and articulating the principles that are latent in the Declaration of Independence, not latent, that are explicit in the Declaration of Independence. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, all drawing deeply and, and directly and explicitly upon the Hebrew Bible. Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't go a day as one of his uh, as one of his closest companions recounted in a great book by Bruce Feiler called America's Prophet about the role of Moses in America. He says he wouldn't go. We wouldn't go a day in the fight for civil rights without 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 mentioning uh, and discussing something that Moses did. Um, you could even go to to the Reagan era referring to Mosul. You could go to Barack Obama talking about the Joshua generation. Like we're always drawing deeply and directly upon the wisdom of the Hebrew Bible. So the reason liberalism needs that is because liberalism is a procedure. It's a way of allowing people to coexist despite difference. And insofar as it's that, it's a marvelous human innovation. It's something that has that has allowed American society and, and other societies as, as well, but it's something that's allowed American society to accomplish incredible things, uh, despite the fact that we're sort of like a, a, a you know, a sort of a proudly like a mutt, you know, like we, we just come from everywhere and it's something that's made us wonderful. But there's no such, nobody goes to battle. Nobody ever goes to war in the name of procedure. You go mm. to war in the name of substantive values. And so in order for American liberalism to to actually um, in order for let me rephrase, in order for American liberalism to actualize the tremendous transformative potential that is lying in its in its wisdom, it needs the substantive mission and enthusiasm and excitement and values that the Bible has always provided it. So mm. now. Does that mean that everybody in a liberal society has to belong to a biblical religion? Obviously not. The whole point of liberalism is that's not is that's not the case. Does is it true that in order to have a Hebrew, you know, a society rooted in biblical principles, you need liberalism? Probably not. But it happens to be that this combination, which in many ways is is intention, right? Like, in other words, liberalism and 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 sort of biblical religion in America make claims that in some ways are either intention or 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 
in deep tension with each other. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, life right. is intent. Life is tension. So I think what what I wish more proponents and defenders of liberalism would recognize in their critiques of the of woke excess is that what we what we need to articulate for society is an alternative grand vision. It's not enough to just say we have a better procedure because guess what? The kids correctly don't want that. They're not convinced by that and they're not compelled by it. Nobody believes, nobody could possibly take seriously the idea that what Martin Luther King Jr. wanted in his, in his, in his fondest dreams was a scenario where every single person had equal ability to become a hedge fund manager. He was Reverend King who was envisioning the, 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 promises of Deuteronomy, of Jeremiah, of Amos coming to life in our days, of us actualizing those promises. And I think if we're going to get back to where we want to be, a society that actually can sustain the liberalism that has made it so powerful and wonderful, um, we need that, that moral, substantive, prophetic voice that allows us to uh, have a mission, and that allows us to radically critique ourselves when we need to. Right. So, yes, and that was amazing. Um, so there's this new field that's emerging, and it's such interesting bedfellows. Um, you have people who are now starting to stand up for liberalism, and they're creating new organizations and websites and writing articles and books. They're, um, and there are two People, two groups that used to actually be on the opposing end of an ideological debate. There's the some of the former new atheists like um, like James Lindsay, Sam Harris, Peter Bogosian. These are the people who are railing against wokeness. And then there are these Christian and Jewish traditionalists, people like Neil Shenvey, who's a who's an evangelical thinker, scholar. Um, who's probably read more uh, critical theory than anybody I know, including the critical theorists who write about it. Um, and, and they're joining forces now. They're now friends because they're fighting against what they, the, the same threat. Um, one, one interesting theory that's sort of emerging among people I talk to is that, is that if wokeness is a religion or critical social justice is a religion and Judaism and Christianity are obviously religions, Christianity and Judaism have been part of the Enlightenment for a long time. They've, they're calibrated in a special way, at least in most societies, or at least in Western societies, that allow them to coexist with liberalism. And wokeness, in a sense, is a replacement theology. It's trying to replace, not Christianity or Judaism, it's trying to replace liberalism. And as a result, Christianity and, and, and Judaism and other traditional religions um, can work with liberalism in a way that critical social justice cannot. And so that's why there may be allies in the making that might have been unthinkable in, um, you know, even a few years ago. What do you think about that? So it's a great point. I would say that within sort of um, the biblical vision for society, there are broadly speaking two forces that come to the fore one of which I think is is easily and obviously compatible with liberalism, the other of which I think is easily and obviously compatible with wokeness. And the tension there, or, or rather the challenge therefore becomes how to provide a vision that unite that actually unites those two impulses in pursuit of virtue and, and flourishing for an American society, a rejuvenated American society. 
the first impulse is is uh, I, I suppose I'd say the two voices that I'm referring to in the biblical tradition. There's the voice of the priest and the voice of the prophet. Right. Um, the priestly voice or impulse in biblical life is one that sees the importance of expertise, of procedure, of um, of institutions that operate well and that function logically and that, and even if, you know, even if, and by logically, I mean, not like, you know, uh, scientifically, I mean, they have an internal logic um, and they're sort of, co they have coherent operations. Um, the priests in the biblical tradition are, are sort of meant to be thoughtful. They are meant to be, they are meant to be teachers. They're the kind of people who, uh, who we expect to be the guardians of a sane society. And it's not to say that, that sort of the, the priests of the biblical tradition are sort of, you know, uh, 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 early liberals or proto-liberals. Um, you know, that that's not the comparison I'm trying to make, but I think liberalism as a procedure that's meant to organize society in a way that reduces conflict, that allows different types of people to get along, that operates logically, coherently, uh, and that keep and that 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 privileges expertise, that recognizes merit, that allows it to rise to the top. I think it's it's deeply and easily compatible with sort of the priestly voice in biblical or the priestly impulse in, in biblical religion and therefore it, and it should be celebrated as such. There's another voice in the biblical tradition that has been equally important to um, uh, to sort of the, the Western tradition as it were. So, you know, if, if uh, the priestly voice kind of finds its expression in Moses, the lawgiver, right? The mm -hmm. idea that we have an ordered society that's built on, on, on coherent articulable principles, right? That's the priestly voice. There's also the prophetic voice in the Western tradition. So the, the prophet, the American prophet par excellence is probably Frederick Douglass, right? So he's a person who, who is, who, who rails against, uh, just deep injustices and contradictions at the heart of the American experience. He's somebody who, uh, you know, uh, who goes between completely rejecting, uh, Independence Day, a celebration of the direct of the Declaration of Independence, is signing as as meaningful at all, and lionizing it because it's the day when the when uh, uh, sort of the American experiment articulated the means to its own salvation without even recognizing it at the time. So mm. prophets are people in the biblical tradition. They're these like radical outsiders. Unlike priests, they are not, uh, uh, they are unpredictable. Their arrival is unpredictable. They're not appointed. They're not born into a family of, of prophets, right? Prophets are people who just appear on the scene. People think they're crazy. People think they're nuts. They are, they're undermining everything upon which society is built. They're the sort of people who are who are adept at holding up a mirror to society and and emphasizing that the world that is is not the world as it ought to be, and that we therefore have great, maybe even terrible but necessary work to do. Um, those kinds of voices uh, are always deeply disturbing to the priests. Um, the uh, there's a reason why why in the biblical tradition and biblical narrative priests and prophets are so often kind of either at each other's throats or at least they're not the same people right, right. but 
I think, you know, the prophetic voice and impulse is very obviously compatible with wokeness, right? Uh, which is recognizing a problem in society and articulating it. Now, I think the problem is that we have here is that liberalism sort of wants the benefits of, of uh, prophecy, right? Because it wants to be this like grand vision for society that motivates people and causes people to change their ways. But priests aren't good at that. Prophets are. And wokeness, on the other hand, wants the benefits of priestliness, right? It wants to be able to order institutions and it wants to be able to articulate new rules by which society will be governed that make no sense often and frankly are, are, are just deeply, um, <laughs> in some cases themselves deeply prejudiced, in other cases just silly. Um, so the problem with prophets, the problem with, with, with the modern day prophets is that they really want to be priests. Right. So, but but uh, here's an interesting. I just want to share with you a brief anecdote about this. It happened in the last two days. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a an article that sort of got people's hackles up. I said Jewish days. Yeah. I, I said Jewish day schools should not teach critical race theory as dogma. Uh, it's possible that I overgeneralized a bit, and some of the critique that people made of the article had some had some legitimacy. But that said, it was the the response was just completely overbearing. One very prominent champion of pluralistic Judaism um, who has been very critical of my critique of critical social justice, who's been, who's been sort of railing against it in public forum and so forth, um, said to me, I think it was on Facebook, um, you're trying to be a prophet, David. And I thought it was just kind of funny because here I am trying to defend the traditional principles of liberalism that I thought were the glue of American society. To me, I'm playing the role of priest. But in some ways, right now, the critical social justice crowd has so established itself in, in certain institutions that they're now the priest. They're now running institutions. They're now dictating how people have to see issues of race and racism and gender and gender ideology and everything else. And the people like me who are coming by and say, wait a second, what happened here? What's going on? We're now suddenly the role of the prophet railing against the status quo. And I find myself in a very peculiar position, not knowing whether I'm being a priest or prophet um, or, or neither. I don't know, just maybe right or wrong. Um, but I, you know, again, I think it's funny how the, the, the parameters of discussion are changing because they've been enormously successful in some would say maybe derogatorily institutional capture. Yeah. And I, I, so I think, I think the, you know, Jeremiah is an exception. We never hear about Jeremiah being doing anything super priestly. We just know he was born to priest, but Priests usually make bad prophets and prophets usually make bad priests. <laughs> um, and I think what what American society as a whole, forget liberalism for a moment, what American society needs is a way to resuscitate its priests and recognize its prophets. And I don't think we've yet hit on the best way to do that. But I do think that we're seeing the obvious kind of uh, the obvious um, conflict between those two playing out. And the way that I think about a solution is you're, you're actually preempting my question. Cause I was just about to ask you what's the plan then. <laughs> so, so now I did that. Go ahead. So it's a great question. I actually have a, a theory about this. So I think, you know, it's been said before um, uh, my, my uh, departed teacher, 
uh, Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, often made mm-hmm. the point that America uh, should think of itself not as a contract society, but as a covenant society, or maybe as embodying both a contract and a covenant. I think the point was very good, um, and and it was it's been very influential on me. But but with with uh, uh, with due uh, very serious trepidation. I think I disagree with his interpretation of what those things mean. And I'd kind of like to lay out what it is. Mm-hmm. I think what we see now uh, is sort of like this, this tension between, you know, when we're talking about sort of narratives of America. So you have uh, the liberals on one side who to some degree or another are, are all what, what I suppose we would have called in a previous generation, maybe still today, American exceptionalists, right? And they're, they're right-wing versions of that and left-wing versions of that, right? The right-wing version would be that America is, is a bastion of goodness and therefore any attack uh, on America's virtue is an attack on America itself. The left-wing version of that is America was always meant to be exceptional, it just failed. Uh, and so we're constantly attempting, we constantly have to, to, to either atone for the failure or get better. And then on the other side um, is sort of the, you know, let's say the, the 1619 projects of the world, which, um, you know, in their most radical form, right? So there obviously is, as you know, the historians have all argued about the merits of the 1619 project or lack thereof. I think everyone basically like all the serious people, I think, agree at this point on what's what's useful and, and, and helpful in the 1619 project and what's not. Um, but without rehashing that, what it represents in sort of its most uh, uh, both radical and also popular form is the idea that actually America is not exceptional at all. Not only is it not exceptional, it's uniquely sinful. Uh, And I think we tend to think of those two poles, the liberals on one, the exceptionalists on one side and the woke or the 1619 project on the other as like incompatible or enemies, but in a really important way, I think they all are really on the same side and they all just agree uh, with the view of America as a contract, which is to say that the way a contract works, um, and this is true of the social contract and it's true of literal financial contracts, is that all the all the uh, conditions uh, upon which the contract is to be executed need to be present at the time the contract is signed. And uh, if they weren't, then one or the other or both parties are in breach of contract and the contract is either null and void or was or was just never enforced to begin with. Um and I think what the exceptionalists and the sort of uh, uh, the 1619 project, let's say, agree upon is that American virtue needs to somehow be squeezed into 1776 or shortly thereafter, right? Maybe in the 19th century in the Civil War, because if it can't be, then America is not exceptional. And the only disagreement is whether or not you can succeed in doing that. The exceptionalist left and right, the sort of the liberal, the, the, the liberal, uh, the liberal faction believes that you can somehow squeeze American virtue into that original period. And the woke folks just don't agree. That's why I think it is crucial, absolutely essential to recognize that America is not a contractual society. It is a covenantal society. What do I mean by covenant? Forget the Bible for a moment. A covenant is a type of agreement that was common in the ancient world that basically does not exist nowadays. For Again, forget the Bible for a second. Covenants were common in the ancient world. What a covenant did was it took two parties. Right? A contract takes two equal parties who freely enter into an agreement 
uh, the conditions for which are set at the very beginning that both agree to and then both must execute. A covenant was an agreement between two fundamentally unequal parties, a strong party and a weak party, usually a conqueror and a vassal or an emperor and a subject. And the agreement stipulated an arrangement, a mutual arrangement between the powerful party and the less powerful party. The less, the weaker party had no choice but to accept the agreement. And that agreement established not a set of conditions to execute, but rather just established a relationship. And the relationship, therefore, had to constantly be renewed as the partnership and fellowship between the stronger partner and the weaker partner grew. So in the biblical tradition, which is sort of the most, in my view, at least, the most refined form of a covenant, because it's literally a covenant between, you know, like almighty God and a people. Um, what the biblical covenant says is God makes a covenant with the people. The people have no choice but to accept it. That is the plain and simple reading of the Hebrew Bible. And the rabbis dramatize this. The rabbis in the Talmud have this tradition that God lifted up Mount Sinai above the people and said, either you accept this covenant or I will kill you right here. So the people are forced to accept the covenant. And that creates a relationship between the Israelites and their God. And over the course of successive generations, the covenant constantly has to be renewed. Uh, because every time the people learn something new about their relationship with, with God, they need to renew the covenant. And sometimes those renewals are in tension with the, with the earlier tellings of the, of the covenant. And they, the way you renew a covenant is by retelling your origin stories again. And those retellings are sometimes, in fact, almost always in tension with the way you told those stories before because you've learned new things. So it is clear to me that America is a covenant. What do I mean by that? It's not a it might be a covenant between God and a people. That's what certainly many great American thinkers have thought. And it's and it's, to an extent, it's what I think as well. But even if you're sort of like if you're the new atheists, right, um, or if, if you're completely a skeptic, it is it's abundantly clear that America is a covenant is a covenant between a set of uh, a set of founding values and a people. Which is why, of course, this was at the root of Frederick Douglass's marvelous and moving response to colonizationists during the Civil War who wanted to say, well, listen, of course, we should abolish slavery. But as soon as we abolish slavery, let's ship all the uh, let's ship all the black Americans back to Africa. Frederick Douglass's response to that is, what are you crazy? Listen, I didn't come here because I wanted to come here. You dragged me here. But now that I'm here, I am just as much bound by the American covenant as you are. I am as much responsible to the values of universal human dignity, liberal equality as you are. And I don't have any choice now but to fight for it. I'm in this covenant now as well. He was forced to accept it, just like anybody is forced to accept the covenant. These values mm -hmm. are binding upon people who come to this shore, to these shores. And therefore, and that was the, the most powerful argument that Douglas mounts. He says, of course, I, I, I didn't want to be here. But now I have responsibilities and how dare you try and take them away from me. The other, the other thing that it allows us to understand is that covenants constantly need to be renewed. And the American covenant has constantly needed to be renewed in ways that are intentional. So for example, in the Bible, you know, the, the covenant is articulated at Mount Sinai, but once 40 years have passed and there's a new generation, the old generation has died out. The new generation is about to enter into the promised land. They've learned new things. They've, they've gotten over many of the hangups of their parents. So then you have the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy retells the story of the previous books, but it does it in ways that are in tension with the previous books. As all biblical commentators for thousands of years have noticed, 
And the American covenant does the same thing. So Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address famously reframes mm. the founding declaration of, of, of American liberalism in ways that, that are in tension with the founders' own conceptions of the declaration. The most famous example is in the Gettysburg Address, where Lincoln says, uh, uh, that uh, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. In Euclidean, uh, in Euclidean language, which Euclidean mathematical uh, concepts, which Lincoln obviously would have understood, is that uh, the, <laughs> the, the idea of humans being equal and that being sort of a God-given right was a proposition. The founders fundamentally disagreed with that. The founders called the idea of human equality a self-evident truth because a self-evident truth is something that is obviously the case. It doesn't even need proof. It's so obviously the case. Now, right. Lincoln understood, of course, that that was wrong because at the very moment that the founders were articulating this self-evident truth, like two plus two equals four, it, it, they were violating that, that very self-evident truth. So Lincoln understood that, no, actually, human equality, the kind vouchsafed, to, to all future Americans by the American founders is not a self-evident truth. It's a proposition. It's something that needs to be proven, that needs to be mm. demonstrated, in our case, with blood and treasure and faith. And so Lincoln retells the story of the founders in a way that's true to their values and true to the American story, but does it in a way that reframes the story and reflects something new that we've learned. And finally, and this is, and by the way, that shows, because every time the covenant is renewed, you are showing that the American story has advanced. So what that does is it frees us from this kind of weird intellectual and political cul-de-sac that we've all found our way into, which is we all are obsessed with the past. So Republicans hate all of their leaders. They just want everybody to be Reagan. Democrats, on the other, on the other hand, have no new ideas. So the only thing they can do is come up with, with, old, with new versions of old ideas. So it's not the new deal, it's the green new deal. Because everybody just wants to go back to the past. The idea, and that makes sense in a contract, right? In a contract, you always want to go back to the original conditions, but a covenant says, no, you don't want to go back to the original ideas. You want to, you need and must create new leaders because you've learned new things. There is nothing that uh, sort of, Lincoln's America was unrecognizable from Washington's America. FDR's America was unrecognizable from Lincoln's America. And, and George Bush's, George, George H.W. Bush's and George W. Bush's America was unrecognizable from Reagan's America, which was unrecognizable from FDR. So what this also gives us, right? So this gives us a way to stop being obsessed with the past. What we need are new leaders that have learned new things. And finally, and this is critical because it is the response to both liberals on the one hand, but more importantly, to sort of woke 1619 project types on the other side. Covenants do not need their original sort of virtues to be actualized at the moment that the agreement is entered into. In fact, the entire point of a covenant is to take a people or a parties from a situation in which they are not meeting their responsibilities and move them slowly but surely to a point where they are meeting those responsibilities. So just to give the most obvious example, the foundational tenet of the biblical covenant is that idolatry must be outlawed. Now, let me ask your listeners a question. Do you think, even if you've never read the Bible, just based on what you know from pop culture, did idolatry disappear from amongst the Israelites as soon as Abraham made his covenant with, with, with the God of his, of course not. In fact, it took thousands, it took like 1500 years or a thousand years. It took like B-side kings like Hezekiah and Josiah to, <laughs> that nobody's ever heard of to eradicate idolatrous worship 
from amongst the Israelites. But every time, but over the course of those thousand years, the Israelites constantly renewed their covenant, got a step closer to ending idolatry. And then they would take a step back. They need to get, take three steps forward and they take another step back. And so the Israelites are constantly renewing their covenant until they get to the point where they can actualize their values. Because the difference between a contract and a covenant when it comes down to it is that a contract needs all its virtue at the beginning. A covenant assumes that the virtue is actually going to come at the end. So it doesn't matter. And in, in fact, not only does it not matter, it is, of course, America was sinful at its beginning. Of course, it was sinful at, at its beginning. That's why it needed a covenant. That's why it needed to be a covenantal society, because without that, it could never it, it could never remove itself from that sin. But what makes America. But that doesn't mean America is not exceptional. I mean, the, the the Israelites call at the same time that the Israelites were entering into a covenant, which recognized their horrible sinfulness, their, their horrible sinfulness. They were still calling themselves a chosen nation. Why? Because chosenness doesn't mean that we are the best, that we are superior. It means that we have these incredible uh, world historical, world altering responsibilities that 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 only we can meet. America is the same way. America, of course, was conceived in sin. That's why we needed a covenant, because we had exceptional responsibilities that we and only we can actualize and live up to. And it makes the American experiment such a wonderful and incredible story with sin and all like the Bible. So if you ask me, what's my solution to the woke conundrum that we find ourselves in these days? It's to recognize that we are a covenantal society, that we are a people who who must have prophets who can confront our evils, but we cannot and we must not let those evils convince us that we aren't exceptional or more importantly, that we don't have exceptional responsibilities that we still must live up to. It doesn't, it, it, and, and we must also remember therefore that we, the reason we have priests, the reason that we have liberal values, the reason that we have free discourse, the reason that we have meritocratic aspirations is because those things help us on our way from getting from our from our sinful period to the redemptive era in our in our history we have priests to help us do that we have to have prophets and we have to have priests the way to do that i think the only way to do that is to have is to sort of either recover or maybe forge right because again i'm saying we shouldn't look to the past we need to forge a new uh, a fusion as it were between liberal values and biblical traditions of aspiration and prophecy and priestly efficiency. And the, the post-liberals will argue, well, fu that fusion is incoherent. And the answer is, of course, it's incoherent. All good things are. Prose is coherent. But poetry, the stuff that, that love, the only kind of language we have to express our deepest, most beautiful and, and, and most dangerous concepts, love, hope, despair, aspiration there's a reason that those things can only be expressed in poetry in things that are hard to understand that are sometimes incoherent that's my vision for the future that's uh, very compelling um you know i'd like to bring you back on i want to bring you back on with perhaps um a christian thinker who's also struggling with these issues neil shenby comes to mind somebody i've interviewed before he's um i think it would be interesting to see your interplay and how much your visions converge, which I suspect they will, and how much they diverge, which I doubt very much. But uh, but it might it. be interesting. Let's do it. Yeah. And, and you're talking about the need to find new dialogue partners. And it's one thing maybe in a follow-up I'd like to explore with you, because I think one of the core 
objectives has to be to create a new coalition of people who support liberalism in society um, and perhaps the values that they're that sustain them. Um, you know, we, we it can't necessarily be with the with the partners that we've grown used to, and it might require us to find new friends. Um, not necessarily get rid of the old ones, but find new friends that we can really work with closely. So we'll explore that in the future as well. And I'm um, really delighted you came on. I thought you brought a completely unique take and um, and you sound, you're doing great work. I have no doubt about it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing this. And I'm going to try to put that conversation together quickly. Thank you so much. This is a total blast. I'd love to come back on. Awesome. Awesome. Rabbi Lamb, thanks a lot. We'll see you soon. I love it. Thanks so much.